Welcome, welcome, welcome to Daring Dialogues. I'm your host today, Shante Charles. I hope that you have been having a great and wonderful day. Right now, today, as many of you know who have listened faithfully to my vlog and my podcast, today is Finance Friday and Health and Wellness Friday. Usually on Fridays, we cover either something to do with finance or something to do with your health. Uh, if you take a look at my uh, IG page, Reach Shantae, you'll see a little bit of some of the workout um, that I have been doing this week, um, working on my lower body um, and doing some workout with my legs. And um, <clears throat> I just put a snippet of it on my IG, my personal IG. But I also put a snippet of the other side of your uh, health and that is self-care. So even though I did some weights on this week, I did make sure that I took some time to um, just relax and enjoy and reflect and ponder um, just life, right? We can be going so much to the place where we don't take time out for ourselves. We don't take time out to reflect. Sometimes, um, you know, m most of us, if we're connected in any way with our family, sometimes our families are getting the majority and bulk of our time and attention. But I encourage you to make sure that you are taking time out for yourself. We're hopping back into one of the reads that we began at the end of last season. And as we're here in season 11, we are going to continue reading from this book. The title of the book is The Whiteness of Wealth by Dorothy A. Brown. How the tax system impoverishes Black Americans and how we can fix it. Now, Dorothy does begin to talk about um, how the tax system is originally was originally set up and how we got to some of the faultiness that we have going on today. And so it is a groundbreaking expose of racism that is embedded in the American taxation system. And she is a law professor herself and an expert on tax policy. So when we have these conversations, yes, we are reading from books, but we are definitely trying to read from material, source material, um, where people have done the work, they've done the research, you know, you can go and look at some of these statistics yourself. Um, and so the books that we are choosing to read from, they are research based. <laughs> so we're not just trying to have these conversations without any uh, research or without any actual, you know, studies done behind them. We are taking our reading mainly from books where the research has been done. And it has been sourced, and you can go and look at some of this research for yourself. So we're picking back up on the conversation about how Congress began to figure out ways to cut taxes that would mainly benefit white families, but not really have a significant change for black families. So we're going to continue our reading from that point. And Dorothy does begin to study this because of what she saw happening with her own parents' taxes. 
So she is taking a personal look at this, but she's also giving us the research. So when you hear me say my mother or my father, I am in fact reading the author's words concerning her parents. Here we go. As Congress was figuring out a tax cut that benefited most tax-paying white families, another important shift was taking place for American Black families. When the Seaborns won their case in 1930, the silver lining for Black families was that tax policy did not matter much to them in general. Remember, until World War II, only the richest Americans, who were almost exclusively white, paid taxes. However, even before the tax rolls were expanded in the post-war era, it was clear that the marriage bonus was likely to disproportionately benefit white couples. Black wives, like my mother, have always worked outside the home more than white wives, even after controlling for income. So <laughs> for all of the wonderful debates that are happening right now about black women and uh, black women making more money than black men understand that for obvious reasons, historically, black wives have always worked outside of the home more than white wives to make up for the lack of income coming in to the black family in general. In fact, even as income rises, the labor gap between white and black wives widens along with it, meaning that among the highest earning couples, more black wives work and more white wives do not. So this whole, I wish my black wife would not work and stay at home and be a stay at home mom and all of that, that would be lovely if there was not such a wealth gap that has already been embedded, embedded in American society. So you do have to take that into account. No matter how high the husband's income is, black wives are more likely to contribute significant amounts to household income than white wives because of the wealth and the labor gap. So we need to really Stop blaming black women for having to work outside of the home. <laughs> Just saying. It was well established in the early 20th century and therefore predictable when Poe versus Seaborn, the law case, was decided by the Supreme Court that any system that gave tax cuts to single wage earner households like the Seaborns would disadvantage black married couples. But that didn't stop anyone from changing the law. By 1948, when the joint return was accessible to everyone, 85% of white families were in single wage earner households, meaning that the man only was earning the wages. Four years later, in the fall of 1952, she says, my parents met and set in motion decades of their paying more in taxes as a double wage earner household. My mother Dottie was still working at a garment factory then, earning about $22 a week and paying room and board to live with her aunt on Union Avenue in the Bronx. One night after she'd already gone upstairs to bed, her cousin told her to get dressed, fix her hair and come downstairs because he had a fella he wanted her to meet. That fella was my father James who worked with her cousin at the post office. 
We didn't hit it off at first, my mother says, but he kept asking about her and finally, months later, they began dating. My mother was in her mid-twenties, which in that era was rounding old maid land, one of the terms used for single black women who are um, older than 23, between the ages of 23 and 26. Although she liked James, she did not want him to waste her time, so she asked him where this was leading. He gave the right answer. My parents got engaged on Christmas Day in 1955 and married the following June. By that time, my mother was trained as a licensed practical nurse and worked at Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx, making $57 a week. My father had learned a trade and started working for a plumbing company. My parents' income was close together, although mommy reminds me that she made a little more than daddy. Compare them to a couple, let's call them Henry and Charlotte, with a similar annual income earned by only one spouse. To keep it simple, let's say James and Dottie each earn $50,000. Henry himself earns $100,000, while his wife, Charlotte, earns zero because she doesn't have to work. Let's assume for the sake of simplicity that the progressive tax system has only two rates and two brackets. One bracket for income up to $50,000 with a tax rate of 10% and a second bracket for income greater than $50,000 with a tax rate of 50%. Marriage doesn't affect James and Dottie's tax position. They would each pay $5,000 or together pay $10,000. Henry and Charlotte, however, have a strong financial incentive to get married. Unmarried Henry would pay a $30,000 tax bill plus $25,000 for a total of $5,000 plus $25,000 or $30,000, leaving him with only $70,000 after taxes. Thanks to the joint return, married Henry, making that same income, would pay only $10,000, leaving him and his wife $90,000 after taxes, a tax cut of $20,000. Now, James and Dottie, too, have $90,000 after taxes. Under the principle of horizontal equity, all might seem well. The two couples have the same income, essentially, and accordingly pay the same tax bill. But, a single-wage earner household is qualitatively different from a household where it takes two wage earners to get to the same income level, not to mention the very different jobs they hold. James and Dottie both work full-time to reach the income that white Henry earns by himself. Henry and Charlotte can divide up their labor so that he can spend long days getting ahead at work and she can take care of the household a common division of labor in very high earning families. Our tax laws specifically ignore the value of the services that a non-working spouse like Charlotte provides to her family. That income is called imputed income. Make sure you take note of that term. Imputed income escapes taxation. Charlotte may care for children or oversee a nanny keep house or supervise a housekeeper, prepare meals, and run errands for her children and husband. All of it enables Henry to focus on his hypothetical six-figure job while Charlotte takes care of the home front. 
If she provided those services for a third party, it would be in exchange for wages, which would be taxable income. So all of the things that Charlotte provides for her home doesn't get taxed. It's called imputed income. Because she provides them to her family, our tax laws treat her labor as a tax-free event. I want people to really, really think about that when you are telling women <clears throat> that you want them to be a stay-at-home mom, but you're not bringing in enough income to support a stay-at-home family's lifestyle, okay? James and Dottie, meanwhile, both have full-time jobs. We're talking about the black couple working outside of the home. They would have to hire outside help with their after-tax dollars to get the equivalent of the services that Charlotte, the white stay-at-home wife, is providing. If they chose to handle housework themselves, research shows that Dottie, as the working wife, would likely still perform a greater percentage of household labor than James. But the amount of Dottie and James's imputed income will always be significantly less than Henry and Charlotte's because James and Dottie each have full-time jobs, while Charlotte's full-time job is working for her family. Given that there are only 24 hours in a day, James and Dottie simply have less time than Charlotte to spend on household work and family care. So even if we increase James and Dottie's household income by the value of their imputed labor, it would always be less than Charlotte's because she is contributing the equivalent of a full workday while they are performing imputed labor in the hours before and after their workday. Even if tax law were to tax both families' imputed income, Henry and Charlotte's taxable income would be greater than James and Dottie's simply because one person is focused on home life full-time while the others are working at least 40 hours per week outside of the home. True horizontal equity would mean that James and Dottie's tax bill should never be equal to, but always less than, Henry and Charlotte's. But those aren't the only advantages Henry and Charlotte receive. Henry, as a six-figure employee, is far more likely to also have health insurance, a retirement account, and other tax-free perks that come with his job. Again, if our tax laws did not exempt those employer-provided benefits from being counted as wages, Henry and Charlotte's household income would be greater than Dottie and James's and taxed accordingly, even assuming that both couples were receiving identical employer-provided perks. The value of an employer's percentage match on a retirement account associated with a $100,000 job is much greater than it would be for a $50,000 job. In order to accommodate Henry and Charlotte and other couples like them, tax policy stretches the definition of equal as far as they can before they break it. It's not coincidental that in this example, Henry and Charlotte are white and James and Dottie are black. There's plenty of evidence, statistical and anecdotal, that demonstrates how black men and women experience race discrimination in the labor market and therefore require two salaries in order to have a middle-class standard of living. Let me say that again. 
because I understand this because I've lived it. <laughs> but I'm not sure other people understand it unless they have actually lived it. Okay. I'm going to say it again. Black men and women experience race discrimination in the labor market and therefore require two salaries in order to have a middle class standard of living. You want a middle class standard of living or higher, usually in a black family, both spouses are working because of discrimination in the labor market. There's also evidence that in practice, black married couples at all income levels are more egalitarian than white married couples when it comes to sharing power or making decisions. What does that mean? It means what we talked about earlier this week, uh, Pastor Ben, that when it comes to sharing power and making decisions, culturally, we tend to do that together. And we don't leave all the decision making to one to the to the male spouse culturally we share power and we help each other make decisions for other people that may not be culturally true our tax policies were built in total ignorance of if not willful disregard for black families financial and social structures the needs and interests of james and dotty and millions of families like theirs were never part of this equation my parents both tried hard to get more lucrative jobs. When my mother left the garment factory to earn a better living, she tried to get hired as an insurance company clerk, but they told her she didn't pass the entrance exam. I knew I had passed. You know when you get the right answers. And a friend of mine, an Italian girl, told me, I'm not smart like you, Dorothy. And they told me I passed. But there was a lot of that going on back then. She decided to become a nurse instead, a career that offered better opportunities, but also required more training. Thankfully, even though the garment factory only employed her for nine months out of the year, my mother had managed to save some money that she was able to use to pay for nursing school. All but two of her nursing school classmates were black women, seeking one of the few professional careers open to them during that time. My father, meanwhile, had to work as an assistant at a private plumbing company because New York City's plumbers union would not admit black men until the mid-1960s. So again, when people are talking about their family lineage, their family history, how they were able to get ahead, they're not taking into account that we were actually, that certain job markets were actually closed to black people. You could not apply for certain jobs in order to improve and increase your income. Again, these are what we call the built-in, baked-in issues that have to do with um, the wage gap in our society. Neither of my parents was earning at their peak salary potential because the system just wouldn't allow it. And their two reduced salaries were critical to our survival. A more equitable tax policy would not only cease to punish families who have two equal earners, but allow our progressive tax system to operate more consistently with its origins in the idea that those with a greater ability to pay should pay or shoulder a higher tax burden. 
A truly fair system would be one that ensures that James and Dottie pay less than Henry and Charlotte. Privileged Americans have always had the power to mobilize for action when they feel that tax policy is mistreating them. Post-1948, the segment of the population who were unhappy with the tax cut received by wealthy couples like the Seaborns were those who were white, wealthy, and single, and they were fighting mad. One such taxpayer, Dunn R. Huff, wrote a letter of complaint that was included in the legislative history of the 1969 Tax Reform Act. This is his words. I, as a single person, pay approximately 4200 more per year than my equal income married business partner, and my 15% higher tax bracket places me at a distinct disadvantage in investing my savings as compared to him. Consider what this can amount to over 30 years of productivity. It is evident that this archaic method of taxation is only another form of discrimination that is perpetuated against a small group in this country of ours. It is unfair, unjust, and most of all unethical because these rules were formulated by those who were to benefit by them. If the unmarried had been truly represented, this could not have happened. Dr. Huff thought he was being discriminated against because he was not taxed the same way as a single-wage earner husband with a stay-at-home wife. And there were a lot of Dr. Huffs out there. A different argument was made by Dorothy Schinder, president of Single Persons Tax Reform, a volunteer national service organization. Schinder argued that unmarried women were not spinsters by choice, but because World War II had deprived them of husbands, as had the ever-increasing number of homosexuals, she stated. In practice, the singles penalty could amount to taxpayers paying 40% more in taxes than a married couple with the same household income. Now, how many people would be upset right now if you had to pay 40% more because you were single? <laughs> Imagine unmarried Henry Seaborn who was white, wealthy, and powerful, only without a wife. Unmarried Henry would be taxed on his $100,000 of income and pay $30,000 in taxes, whereas Henry, with that same income married, would pay $10,000 because half the income was considered his wife's, even though she was not working, but he would be taxed at a lower rate. Unmarried Henry viewed wealthy, white and powerful single wage earners married Henry as his equal, and he and his bachelor cohort considered the singles penalty as unfair. There was a penalty, tax penalty, for singleness, which is another historical reason why people were like, let's get married. In response, Congress enacted the Tax Reform Act of 1969, which significantly reduced the penalty for unmarried taxpayers. The tax brackets were changed to cap the singles penalty at 20%. No longer would single taxpayers pay 40% higher taxes than their married counterparts with equal household incomes. Dr. Huff got something, but not everything he wanted. 
As part of the deal, married couples like the Seaborns got a reduced marriage bonus and a smaller tax cut. Still, married couples with one stay-at-home spouse by 1970, which was roughly 60% of married white women fell into this category, paid taxes less than they would have if they had remained single. The truly bad news was reserved for couples making roughly equivalent income, couples like her parents. The legislation that made black married couples poorer was enacted by a Congress that included 10 black members of the House and one black senator. But there were no black members on the House Ways and Means Committee where tax legislation originates. There was no black Charlotte and Henry Seaborn with the wealth and time to fight the laws that took money out of their pockets. So as the system evolved, a mostly white male Congress introduced a marriage penalty. When certain couples got married, not only would they not get a tax cut, not get a tax cut, but their taxes would increase when compared with what they would have been paying by remaining single. How this happens is hidden in plain sight in the rate structure. Let's look at the tax rates from 1975, six years into tax reform. For a single wage earner with $45,000 of taxable income, black or white, her first $500 of taxable income was subject to a 14% tax, while her last 500 of income, income greater than 44,000, was taxed at 60%. Her marginal tax rate was 60%, the highest a single wage earner could be subjected to under the new law. Yes, significantly higher than our current top marginal tax rate of 37%. A single wage earner making half that income, or 22,500, had a marginal tax rate of 40%. But if two singles, each earning $22,500 got married, and statistically, if they were a black couple, they kept earning these two incomes, their last $1,000 of income was taxed at 50%, an increase of 10% points from what they would have paid as unmarried individuals. A household with one wage earner making $45,000 a year and one earning no income, statistically speaking, most likely a white couple had a marginal tax rate of 50% too. But this represents a decrease of 10 percentage points from the single wage earner's marginal tax rate when unmarried. When the two, each making $22,500 get married, their marginal tax rates increase from 40% to 50%. But when the $45,000 wage earner marries a non-working spouse, his marginal tax rate decreases from 60 to 50%. That is how married white couples got a tax cut and married black couples paid higher taxes for the same household income. Any couple with two working spouses in which one partner makes at least 20% of the family's total income will pay a marriage penalty. The more equal their contributions, the greater the penalty. Households where the lower earning spouse contributes more than 20% of household income 
are marriage penalty households, but they pay the smallest penalty. A household with a 30-70 split pays more, and a household with a 50-50 split pays the highest penalty of all. Again, they're going by the amount of money being earned in the household. That was the solution to my mystery. That was why my parents paid so much in taxes. My father's overtime, which put his income close to my mother's, and of which he was so proud, was causing them to pay a higher marginal tax rate than they would have had they never gotten married. And although it's possible that no one in Congress was considering the effect on Black families when the Tax Reform Act of 1969 was passed, a Senate could argue that they were certainly thinking about specific types of white married couples. The penalties enacted in the law protected the labor market advantage of white men by encouraging their competition, white women, to stay out of the paid workforce. Just let that sink in. Just let it roll around in your head. <laughs> the law protected the labor market advantage of white men by encouraging their competition in the labor market, white women, to stay out of the paid workforce. It was simple. Marriage to and financial dependency on a working white man was rewarded with a tax cut. Let me just go over here and sip my OJ. <laughs> if you wanted to work as much as your husband, no tax cut for you. So that's a little bit of baked in patriarchy there. If you want it to be equal in the home and outside of the home by financially contributing as much as he did, the tax policy would punish you. Mm -hmm. Just marinate, let that marinate for a moment. The majority of married couples have always received a marriage bonus. And today, roughly 95% of married couples file tax returns jointly. But over time, as more white women joined the paid labor market and were hit with the marriage penalty, Congress began to make efforts to minimize it. My research based on the 1990 census, for example, showed that for households earning between $60,000 and $90,000, there were more white married couples where both partners worked and earned roughly the same income, putting them in the marriage penalty category. Then there were couples where one spouse made no income, providing them the marriage bonus. In all other income ranges, white couples were still largely getting a bonus when they got married. But the trend was clear. And beginning in 2003, President George W. Bush signed into law tax cuts eliminating marriage penalties for marriage couples earning less than $56,800. This reform came with a large caveat, however. The new law did not apply to taxpayers eligible for the earned income tax credit, which applies to low-income wage earners. The tax credit is different from a deduction 
because it offsets tax liability rather than lowering your taxable income. Bush only slightly reduced the marriage penalty found in the EITC, which meant that those who needed it most, hardworking, low-income Americans, got very little tax relief from being married. As a candidate in 2000, Bush had said, what kind of a tax code is it that discourages marriage? While in office, he instituted a healthy marriage initiative promoting marriage as a path to stability for low-income families. Yet, from a tax policy perspective, President Bush did very little to change things for low-income workers. The reduction in the marriage penalty came with another price, an increase in the singles penalty again. Under the new system, an unmarried earner like Dr. Huff paid more. A middle-income married couple like James and Dottie paid the same as they would individually, and a married single-wage earner like Henry Seaborn got a large tax break. High-earning, dual-income married couples were hit the hardest of all. The writer says, My father died in 1994, so my parents weren't able to benefit from the 2003 marriage penalty relief. But other black married couples did, with the big exception of those being those who qualified for the earned income tax credit. They would benefit even more from the marriage penalty relief offered in the 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Treasury Department research had predicted that in 2016, a bare majority or 51% of married couples would receive a marriage bonus, while 40% would pay a marriage penalty. And it should come as no surprise that as more white married couples were subject to the marriage penalty, tax relief was right around the corner. In 2017, Tax Cuts and Jobs Act kept the marriage penalty for low-income taxpayers eligible for the earned income tax credit, but temporarily eliminated it for almost all other households except those in the highest marginal tax bracket, 37%, which applies to very high-income households, those that are making at least $500,000 for single taxpayers, and 600000 for married taxpayers. But this round of marriage penalty relief also came at a cost, an even greater marriage bonus. Mathematically speaking, that is, the only way to provide marriage penalty relief in a joint return progressive tax system. In order for dual-earning black married couples outside of the lowest and highest income levels to not pay higher taxes when they get married, their white single-wage earner equal in income household peers would now pay even less. But remember, when it comes to income, two does not equal one. We're going to stop there. So, as we are having these conversations around the world about black love and black marriage and division of labor and who should be doing what in the household and why they should be doing it in the household and who should be earning and who should be staying at home, please go get this book. (laughs) Please go get this book. Read it. And figure out 
if you're married, figure out what you need to do to make sure that you all are not falling under these marriage penalties. For some couples, that may be married filing separately. Not that you are separated, but it could mean that that's one way that you could possibly beat some of these marriage pen these penalties that are um, built into the system. So that is what I wanted to share with you today. This has been another episode of Daring Dialogues. I've been your host today, Shante Charles. Go back to the beginning if you hopped in late so you can understand the full context of the conversation. This has been Finance Friday. I hope that you continue to be healthy, wealthy, and wise in all your decision making. Have a great weekend, and I will see you, Lord willing, on Monday, same time, 11 a.m. for Monday Motivation. Remember, light is the most daring opposition to darkness, so continue to go out and be light.